at a time when the COVID-19 pandemic has raised issues of welfare regimes higher up the global agenda, author Ferdinand Eibel discusses his book, Social Dictatorships, the Political Economy of the Welfare State in the Middle East and North Africa. Using mixed methods of study, the book presents an explanation as to why social spending in authoritarian regimes differ and presents case studies of the political origins of the Tunisian and Egyptian welfare state. Interviewing Ferdinand is IDS Research Fellow Max Gallion. Welcome Ferdinand, thank you so much for making the time to uh, speak about a topic which has become somewhat unfortunately um, quite timely given the uh, ongoing corona um, pandemic. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I think it would make sense to kind of talk a bit more broadly about um, welfare states in, in the Middle East and then kind of move on to kind of present day questions in, in the second half of the podcast. The thing that really struck me and that I would want to start with was that for anyone who's done research in the Middle East and especially on the politics of the Middle East, one thing that's really striking is that um, welfare state issues and particularly education and health coverage are really, really common issues, really hot button issues in day-to-day political discussions within the region, and yet they're oddly absent from a lot of political science scholarship. And I was wondering, A, where do you think that strange gap is coming from, and what got you to a position to, to begin to fill it with, um, with social dictatorships? Yeah, well, first of all, Max, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk about my book and uh, then also later on to talk a little bit about the the book in the context of uh, COVID-19. So thanks for having me. Um, To your question, I mean, you're absolutely right. The social policies are woefully neglected in the scholarship on, on the Middle East. And that really contrasts to scholarship, say, in Latin America, where you could easily fill... Uh, you know, at least an aisle in a library with books on social policies from various perspectives, economists, political scientists, anthropologists, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think this neglect in in the study of the Middle East comes down to a few factors. Well, first of all, in terms of the way Middle East scholars have been trained, there's traditionally been a huge emphasis on, on language, which is absolutely right, the acquisition of Arabic and or Farsi or Hebrew, whatever, as, as, your, as your main tool. But then, then obviously kind of makes you more likely to pick up certain, certain research topics or maybe also certain research methodologies to use interviews to t- study textual sources. And uh, that can then lead to neglect of, say, uh, more political economy type topics. Um, and I think somewhat related to this, um, Middle Eastern studies has also been dominated by a few kind of, if you will, bread and butter issues that the that the region has kind of uh, produced. Uh, so, for instance, the study of political Islam. I mean, you can you can there's there's so much scholarship on this, an amazing scholarship on this. Um, um, and I think people have kind of ventured into this because they thought they have a comparative advantage here relative to uh, scholars working on on other regions, and it. This is related to, I think, a third point, which has to do with the kind of geopolitical context of which Middle East scholarship, at least Western Middle Eastern scholarship, occurs. I mean, traditionally, scholarship on the MENA region has been shaped a lot by geopolitical interests, by what, uh, by the topics that kind of Western countries are interested in from a point of view of 
maybe controlling the region or at least better understanding managing the region quote unquote so that means that a lot of the MENA scholarship is highly securitized and looks at issues such as wars civil wars sectarianism islamism itself terrorism and all of these things kind of come from this um i think legacy uh, uh but also ongoing uh, shaping of of geopolitical interests in, in in middle east scholarship now i mean i was based i came then to this sort of basically from the realization that there is a huge gap and I, th I thought this is my comparative advantage um so i realized i, I remember that there was a book on the political economy of the welfare state in latin america by sigura obiergo published i think 2007 and i thought that's the type of book that i want to write and that's the type of book i i wish existed on the middle east but it didn't and so uh, in a way, I ended up writing it. Um, I don't know. Other people will have to judge to what extent this is this is uh, you know a good approach or. But uh, you know, this is what this was at least of my trajectory um, into the topic. Well, having had the enormous pleasure of of reading it, I thought it was really really striking, not just by by filling a gap um, that that was obvious in the field and striking in the field but because it highlighted the enormous diversity of welfare trajectories in the region. It tackled some of the uh, kind of common assumptions that partly due to the lack of scholarship have been endlessly repeated around, you know, uh, welfare states uh, spending in early Nasserist Egypt. It highlighted some of the things that were commonly overlooked, such as Tunisia. But what I found really, really striking is that it doesn't just provide patterns and kind of stylized groupings of, of diverging um, welfare state regimes in the region, but it also really tries to tackle at the historical origins of these and try to get at the key factors that have driven, driven this divergence. Could you give, a, give listeners a, a really, really brief rundown of, of some of the key factors that you see have driven uh, welfare state provision in the region in such dramatically divergent trajectories? Yeah, I mean, the, what, what I came to realize when, when I started my research is that, well, first of all, as you rightly say, there is this huge divergence of outcomes, which we, uh, to some extent, scholarship wasn't necessarily aware of, just because some countries are understudied, or we had sort of not necessarily the right data to put things into comparative perspective. And then you know, as I tried to figure out to, you know, what, what the factors were that explain this divergence, I literally had to tr trace the, the data, the spending data that I started with backwards to figure out when did actually this divergence occur. And this is what pointed me to processes of mm, regime formation. I'm, I'm not sure I would necessarily say they always coincide with state formation because, for instance, Egyptian state formation precedes the NASA area. You know, it's a long, longer ongoing process, but definitely regime formation is, is, is something that is incredibly powerful uh, um, as a sort of, as a critical moment, as a crucible in order to, um, you know, bring about these long-lasting institutional arrangements. So, in a nutshell, the, my argument rests on two pillars. One is the type of ruling coalitions that authoritarian regimes end up with, and then the context in which they operate. And so when ruling coalitions are, 
uh, abroad, elites have an uh, inherent incentive to distribute welfare broadly and also generously. And narrow support coalitions that are mainly composed of uh, elites don't have this incentive. And you know, here I don't reinvent the, the, the wheel, as it were. I, I sort of rely on scholarship that has uh, pointed to important, you know, determinants of broad versus narrow coalitions. For instance, intra-elite conflict uh, has been highlighted in scholarship such as Waldner's and so on and uh, so forth um, as an important determinant. What I, what I do is I refine this a, a little bit because I think intra-elite conflict is just a very can be a very vague category. So what I argue is that literally conflict becomes very important when it can't be repressed and it can't be reconciled. And so this is why, for instance, in some cases in my uh, <clears throat> in my uh, in my book, such as Pahlavi uh, uh, Iran, you see that there was important intra-elite conflict, but um, because one side could I well had higher repressive capacity than the other one, either because they, you know, the way the intra-elite conflict occurred split the repressive apparatus very unevenly, and basically all the armed forces sided with one side, or there was an external patron available, such as in the case of, of, of Iran, who relied, where the Pahlavi regime relied on Britain and, and the US to overthrow the nationalist threat. Whenever this was possible, this kind of incentive to broaden the coalition was undermined. And uh, similarly, um, uh, you, you see salient communal uh, cleavages also tend to undermine um, these broad coalitions. So once these coalitions are in place, what, what then matters is the context in which regimes operate. And here, what I, I really want to emphasize in the book is that the geostrategic and geoeconomic context in which regimes operate determines not only patterns of, say, war and alliances, but also very much bread and butter domestic politics, such as social policies. So whenever regimes, take for instance the Nasser regime, uh, faced strong external threats, in, in this case in the form of, of, of Israel, there was an acute trade-off between spending on the armed forces and spending on, on, on domestic issues. And the regime perceived these trade-offs as, as such and perceived them as acute and something that needed to be uh, needed to be addressed. And whenever there's no resources available, um, you know, in the Middle East, the main uh, abundant resource to overcome this issue is, is oil, but it could in theory be other resources. But if there's no resource endowment available to kind of overcome the trade-off between butter and guns, um, regimes end up with a broad welfare uh, state, but not necessarily a broad and generous welfare state. So you end up sort of in a, in, in a world where you have three types of welfare states in the region, the broad and generous ones where you have a broad coalitions that weren't impeded by sort of the geostrategic context or regimes that could overcome this trade-off between butter and guns because they had, uh, had oil uh, and a big resource endowment. Those that had an incentive to spend on social welfare, but they uh, really couldn't overcome this trade-off and they end up with a broad welfare state that isn't very generous and that's sort of chronically underfunded. And then you have minimal segmented welfare provision where basically narrow regime coalitions didn't invest a lot in social policies in the first place or very much limited it to key constituencies of the regime rather than the population at large. And these welfare regimes tend to be much less universalist in character. 
um, so access to social policies is is much more linked to status to a labor market status and so on and so forth I mean what you outlined there is a is kind of a broad structuralist theory of of welfare states in the region being driven by communal cleavages elite cohesion repressive capacity external threats and I wonder if there's something deeply pessimistic in that I mean, given that uh, these are things that don't tend to change that quickly. And I mean, one of the things that the data in your book shows as well is that welfare regimes in the region are incredibly sticky over time. And uh, there's, there's an enormous path dependency. Now, from the World Bank to the African Development Bank to, to all kinds of development actors across the world, we're spending enormous amounts of money, um, and, and so do uh, development actors within the region, on trying to improve healthcare provision, trying to improve um, schooling and, and various welfare um, outcomes in the region. Are these attempts doomed from the start? No, I wouldn't say so. And also, the, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. It is a structuralist theory, and this is probably also where some of its weaknesses uh, uh, lie. And, and I hope that, you know, others will, will take this and, and improve it or, you know, reject part of it. I mean, scholarship is always sort of an ongoing process. But I see this sort of argument as, a, as the starting point of a debate, hopefully. But I'm, unlike you, I don't think the fact that it's structuralist means it's necessarily pessimistic, you know, because structuralist theories can also lock in good outcomes when so when when times get tough that means that welfare regimes don't necessarily evaporate um so for instance uh, that's something we've seen to some extent in the tunisian case where despite you know adverse conditions in the 1980s and early 1990s and big economic changes over time and the advent of a whole new development model based on neoliberalism many of the fundamental pillars of, the, of, of their welfare state haven't changed and on the contrary some of them have actually expanded and continuously included new, new groups so in that sense it really depends um it really depends you know on what side of this initial uh, uh um regime formation process you end up with whether you end up with a strong welfare state or not but in terms of your question and sort of regarding policy interventions at a later stage. I, I, I would argue that they're necessarily more limited in, 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 in their reach, you know? I mean, you, you, you don't build a whole institutional uh, setup back from scratch. So what you, what you very often end up with is institutional layering. So if you really think that the given institutions, say for instance, about social protection, you wanted to do something about, the informal, the informal sector, which very often is neglected. If you wanted to add sort of this to the existing institutional setup, very often you have to create sort of a new layer of institutions that has sort of a, a new mission and, and a new policy objective, which in that case would be, you know, target, uh, target informally employed uh, uh, workers. Um, so yes, the, the, the extent to which you can sort of fundamentally shift um, social policy trajectories becomes much more constrained at later stages of development and sort of way past regime formation. Critical junctures are rare, and that's the that's a good and a bad thing depending on the outcome. Was I think? I really want to get to the critical junctures, uh, given that we might be might be living through one of them right now. But I'll I'll add in one more question on the on the kind of wider argument of the book um, in general. One of the things I found quite striking in it was that one of the 
actors that we would imagine to play a large role in the region when it comes to pushing for welfare provision is markedly absent in it. There's relatively leftist parties, communist mm. parties, socialist movements in the region, um, which have a, a large history in the region, um, don't come up in the narrative that often um, and don't feature as a central part of, the, um, of those kind of wider um, trajectories and setting countries on these trajectories that you outlined. So I was wondering if you, wanted to, if you could talk a little bit about the role that you think that leftist parties have had in welfare state provision in the region. I think it's been very limited and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I entirely agree with, 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 your, with your premise. I mean, certainly leftist parties have a long history, but it's not necessarily a history of strength. I mean, I don't know, I don't know many countries in the region that have sort of produced long-lasting, well-organized uh, leftist mass parties with strong, you know, regional um, representation and branches and so on and so forth. The only kind of left-wing actor that in the region that has over time consistently been able to do this is the UGTT in, in, in Tunisia, sort of as a, as a labor union. But in terms of parties, um, uh, the, the region has very often been characterized by generally weak parties and that, and even more so sort of left-wing parties, which have been, for instance, more weakly organized than, than uh, Islamist parties, for instance. So I'm, I think there is something to be said about institutional weakness of, 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 of the left, although ideologically the, 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 the left was very important, but institutionally and in terms of organization capacity, uh, it's been a rather weak actor. This is partly also to do with the fact that it was the, historically the key opposition to nascent authoritarian regimes. So what rulers did is that they tried to suppress any actor, any left-wing actor that had organizational and mobilizational capacity. Um, so, and what we, what we see in the region at the moment is partly a legacy of that process, but it also has to do with sort of the long-term structural factors such as patterns of commodification, you know, I mean, as opposed maybe to Latin America, the, labor and sort of the working class in the region was never fully commodified and, and sort of certainly not in, in, in the way it was in, in, in OECD countries. So the, 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 the process of class formation itself um, differed from, from, from other places so that in many, in many countries you didn't have this kind of pool of a very strong cohesive working class that you that could have mobilized, you know, even if it would have wanted to. And sometimes the same factors that led to, you know, narrow coalitions also divided the left. So if you take sectarian divides, they, they in some countries, they also tended to divide um, a working, working class actors. So I think on, on the whole, there is sort of a bunch of, of, of factors that made the, made, made sure that the left wasn't a sort of a key actor in, the establishment of, of different welfare regimes. And when it comes to rulers' ideologies, in my view, I'm quite skeptical of their, of their significance. I mean, in the, in the two case, case studies on, on, on Nasser, Egypt and, and Bogiba, what really comes out from sort of the sources that I looked at is that both of them were first and foremost nationalists. So this was their this was a true ideological stance that they took. Anything else afterwards was very much shaped by um, the, the, the coalitions and the actors in the coalitions that they, that they built. 
Um, and so at some point, for instance, it's, it's very striking that Bogiba was very much opposed to the sort of left-wing social policies that the UGTT was bringing into, into the ruling party. But in a way, he could, he could only delay certain, um, he could only delay, delay this or sort of try to uh, attenuate some of, sort of the, their ambition. Um, but he couldn't fundamentally change it because he had to rely on the UGTT as a, as a key sort of constituency in, in, the, in the ruling coalition. So, so much about sort of the left um, in the region. But yeah, overall, quite, quite skeptical of its, of its significance. I mean, if you alluded it earlier, if welfare regimes are sticky and critical junctures are rare, Mm. This might be a particularly important time to, to start thinking about, about critical junctures. We're, we're doing this podcast on Zoom as um, the UK is still on lockdown um, due to the ongoing corona, uh, corona um, pandemic. It has hit countries across the Middle East quite differently. And obviously, um, these, these things are changing quite quickly and numbers are unreliable. So anything we are talking about now might be, might be out of date in a week. But the picture as it emerges so far seems to be that Iran has been hit uh, quite early and quite hard with um, over 90,000 cases and over 5,000 deaths, I think, um, as of earlier this week. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel have both had a relatively high number of, of cases. Um, North Africa has a somewhat lower number of cases that are reported, but a higher number of deaths. Obviously, there are, there are issues with all these numbers. But we've also seen countries in the region react to this um, in instituting lockdowns, in um, instituting public policy measures to help people um, both financially and um, in terms of uh, providing health systems with the resources they might need. But at the same time, diversity in health capacity has been quite visible. Now, I was wondering, as you followed um, these last couple of months in, in the region as well, has anything surprised you? Has anything uh, struck you as as unexpected in states' responses to this crisis? Mm, not fundamentally. Um, in, in a way, I was almost positively surprised. And, and don't and, and don't get me wrong that the the overall response to the informal sector hasn't been sort of is 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 by far not sufficient, but. I was surprised still that to see that countries that very often tend to neglect their informal sector or securitize their informal sector and sort of in an attempt to want to control it or see it as something potentially threatening, um, once it becomes clear that the informal sector kind of matters um, because it's in, in, in the context of a pandemic, the behavior of most people working in the informal sector will very much determine what the eventual damage is, for instance. Um, that countries that have sort of previously not invested a lot of effort in sort of reaching out into the informal sector in terms of social policies have now actually shown some, uh, some good initiatives, you know, some creative ways of maybe targeting a sector that is difficult to you know reach into it at least requires more investment and it requires more thinking and the the sort of political payoffs of doing this are not uh not maybe as high as if you target you know key middle class urban constituencies who are you know in the long run politically maybe deemed as more threatening or as more relevant, you know, but for instance, there have been attempts in Morocco, you know, to, to use mobile phone networks to reach out to the informal sector. Egypt has sort of tried to build 
a certain uh, you know a database and a program where people can register and then draw and support but at the same time there's also shows that a lot still remains to be done you know but on a if you want to look at sort of the glass half full uh, uh, side of things it is clear that if you know political elites uh, have an incentive to um, to reach out to the informal sector, then then policy solutions can be found. Um, and sort of this this seems to be sort of one of the more promising aspects of the crisis. To the extent I, I don't know to what extent this will be lasting. I don't know what you think about this. I mean, I thought it. Um, I was thinking you have this beautiful line from like you, you reference this line from Aristotle in in your book, um, where you say that it's often more revealing to ask not by whom a regime is ruled, but for whom it is ruled. And um, a large part of the, the narrative in your book is around how regime constituencies can also teach us something about social welfare um, trajectories. And one of the somewhat incorrect uh, issues around the crisis have been, it has been framed as this great equalizer, which of course it wasn't, it has hit people disproportionately, but it has hit people across society and it's been I think really interesting to see that as the informal sector, if you, if you mention it, which in the region has so often been kind of uh, demonized by regimes, it's been referred to you know, as the illoyal competition as uh, somehow in league with the terrorists and, and, and something that subverts the state or as you know, the, the Maroc inutile, as the kind of the, the part of the economy that's not worth developing, seeing governments focus more on this and, and expend uh, some, some welfare provisions towards this, I think it's been really positive to see. What I think is, is the million dollar question, and I think it, it uh, goes along quite, quite well with, the, with what you just said, is that the question is, does this translate into a change of the kind of regime constituency in the long term, right? Does this uh, translate into more political voice in the long term? Does it translate into more universalist um, forms of provision? And maybe that's the second part of the, of the crisis I'd, I'd love to hear from you about. I mean, the one is kind of the immediate reaction now, but also unless something very dramatically happens with how debt is organized internationally, it seems quite likely that a lot of the countries in the region, both as a combination of the current expenditures, the global crisis and uh, the oil price, will be heading for a fiscal crisis in, in coming years. Do you see that as another potential turning point for welfare states in the region? I'm not sure about that. What I'm sure about is that the, the fiscal crisis that will ensue um, is, is likely to undermine this formation sort of of a broader coalition that you outlined. Because as, as you know, this idea of uh, solidarity, so which, which emerges sort of as a, as a feeling, maybe as a sort of a, an impulse uh, uh, um, amongst national elites and amongst the population at large, is something that you can initially rely on, but you need to somehow, in order to, to you know, to affect uh, long-lasting change, this needs to be translated into something, you know, post-immediate crisis. And um, this requires political entrepreneurs, and this requires a sort of a, I think, a willingness also um, on the part of those who so far benefited mostly from public social policies in the region, i.e. urban, urban middle classes, you know, to some extent, share these benefits. Now, during the pandemic, it makes sense because, you know, as I said, the behavior of people working in the informal sector directly affects how people in, in the 
whether people in the formal sector will get it, whether the economy will, will suffer, whether lockdown will last longer or not. So they, this, this connectedness is, is really kind of created by the, some, to some extent by the virus itself. Once this is over and we get into this distributional conflict about who's going to bear the costs, very often, I mean, the chances are that we will likely fall back into sort of old, old, old patterns where sort of distri existing distributive coalitions will try to kind of safeguard, safeguard their benefits. And if we, if if any of the kind of fiscal consolidation processes of the last twenty five years in the region, which have in a way all failed to to fundamentally change long lasting, you know, patterns of of, of growth. Um, so, so much about sort of IMF structure adjustment, but if any of, if in terms of the fiscal aspect of it, if, if they've taught us anything, is that the costs have usually been disproportionately, um, you know, allocated to uh, those with the least voice, those with the highest levels of vulnerability. I mean, the, the last Egyptian IMF program is, is, is a big case in point with the increase of poverty, which the regime itself has acknowledged. And if this is going to be uh, repeated in the sort of next decade, um, I don't see big a big chance for sort of long-lasting changes of social policy regimes because elites will primarily be focused on this, and everything will be about safeguarding existing um, existing benefits. In in a desperate turn to, to try to get a half glass full message out of you towards the end of this. Um, you just pointed to the IMF and um, again as fiscal pressures are going to mount throughout the region there might also be a renewed in some cases, a new in some other cases or continued in, in a third group engagement with international financial actors. Does that also change the kind of domestic discussion and internationalize it more? Are we going to see more region-wide discussions or a more international influence on welfare provision in the region? I don't know, Max, why you come with the IMF if you want a glass half full message from me, but <laughs> um, I, 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 I do my best. I mean, the, I don't know. I mean, if, if we look at the past, I mean, the, the, the role of the IMF is well established. I mean, it seems to be a recurrent feature that every, every five to 10 years, uh, the resource poor countries, or at least the labor abundant countries in the region, go through some form of IMF restructuring. So far, this hasn't really kind of internationalized the social policy debate, but I'm not sure, what do you actually mean by that? So what, what do you have in mind? Well, I'm imagining that a lot of the discussion we had earlier, a lot of these long-term trajectories are, are kind of baked into national regime coalitions and into uh, ethnic cleavages, political cleavages within the region. Um, if these are now being renegotiated, even with an actor uh, such as the IMF that has historically does not have a strong track record of, of strengthening social um, welfare provision in the region. I mean, it, it breaks up something and it opens up new possibilities. So I was, I was trying to find if, if we could have any hint of, of positive change within that, that, new, um, that new negotiation. Yeah, it bears sort of, the, it brings the chance of a reshaping of, of certain coalitions but fundamentally I think these coalitions are domestic in nature and I think this is not only a feature 
of of uh, of the Middle East. I think that's also a feature, for instance, of Europe. I mean, I, I think organizing cross-national distributive coalitions and and it's mobilizing them effectively to say get something which looks much like a more uh, a, 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 say an EU that has a stronger social policy component or has more solidarity or sort of a, a Middle East that would have a sort of a um, stronger social uh, policy you know framework this is very difficult to organize uh, across uh, across countries so the ability to kind of you know transcend the nation state there as 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 the key kind of framework of reference is is really difficult and i i certainly can't see the imf being here the, the great the great game changer Yes, I think you've left us with a, a glass half empty, but a much better understanding. I tried my best, but <laughs> you threw the IMF at me. What, what can I do? Well, I think I knew what you were going to do with it, and I kind of wanted you to do that. But um, I, mean, I think you've also provided us with a much better understanding of how historical trajectories are going to be important um, for understanding of what we're seeing in the region now. And for anyone who does want to look into that more, Social Dictatorships is out on Oxford University Press, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, Ferran, thank you, thank you so much for, for making the time and speaking with us today, even if it's in these difficult times and over Zoom. Yeah, thank you very much, Max. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. And you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development and Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit ids.ac.uk.